This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the natural scientist and philosopher Charles Foster about his new and truly wonderful book, Being a Human. Adventures in 40,000 Years of Consciousness. A truly wonderful book, Charles, in the literal sense of the phrase, a book of wonders. So many of them to be seen living simultaneously in the present and the past that you constantly find the now in the then and the then in the now. Perhaps you can begin by explaining your voyage of discovery in the way you do in your last chapter, at dinner in an Oxford college with the professors to whom the tale you tell seems utterly preposterous and its speaker a raving lunatic. Thank you very much. Um, I'm looking forward very much to our conversation. And I began this crazy piece of archaeological and anthropological method acting because I didn't know what sort of creature I was. And it seemed to me to be rather important to have some idea, because if I don't know what I am, um, how can I know how to act? How can I know what really makes me thrive? Um, If I don't know how I'm using those huge personal pronouns like I, um, how can I be honest um, when I'm saying to my children, I love you, or I say to my friends, I'm your friend. So I wanted answers to those really important questions. Um, And I wanted to know how to approach those really important issues, uh, because they matter um, as of now. But in order to find out the answers to those questions, I thought that I had to jump right back to the very beginning of modern human consciousness, which was about 40,000 years or so ago um, at the dawn of the Upper Paleolithic. It's then that we see in the archaeological record uh, the signs of people who perceive the world in more or less the same way that we see it. I expect we'll come on to this, but I think that they saw the world rather more accurately. They had fewer biases. They dealt with far more information um, in a rather more satisfactory, less distorting way uh, than we do. But their approach was basically ours. And then I jumped on to the Neolithic, a time when our relationship, particularly with the natural world, changed when we started to draw lines between ourselves and other species, lines which we hadn't drawn before. We started to draw lines across the land. Some of those lines were literal, fences and walls to keep in the animals that we uh, had tamed, but which ended up uh, constraining us, imprisoning us. And we also created categories uh, which previously hadn't existed. We drew lines across our own minds uh, and we became imprisoned in the compartments which we created in that way. And then I jump to the Enlightenment, a rather ironic term for what I'm afraid has become a time of darkness, a time of the sclerosing of ideas. Um, It was intended to free us from what was perceived as uh, the uh, slavery of superstition. Um, We ended up 
uh, turning it into uh, a new sort of uh, fundamentalism. And I think that's the phase we're now in. So that was the journey which I felt I had to, to take in order to discover, A, what human beings are, uh, and B, what Charles Foster, who, after all, is a human being, is. How do you go about it? I mean, you, 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 you travel into the Upper Paleolithic, and where do you go? And who are you at that point? I mean, how old are you, and, and what are your origins, and whence do you come from? And, and what kind of – are you camping out in Derbyshire with your son and with the spirits of the Upper Paleolithic? Explain your – your method. I mean, your travels and eating roadkill and learning how to find a communication with animals and, and, and stones. I mean, out-of-body experiences. I mean, give us a little bit of your, you know, bio as you start out and then take us into Derbyshire and the Upper Paleolithic. I was brought up in Yorkshire. I was brought up on the edge of the Derbyshire Peak District, so at the top of our little suburban road, the neon streetlights gave up, and the howling wilderness um, began. And the wind which blew in through my bedroom window was a wind which brought uh, with it uh, the screams of things being uh, chewed and dislocated. And the reason I mention that is because there has never seemed to me to be the clear seam which uh, is often asserted between the wild and the urban. So I agree entirely with the American philosopher David Abraham. Uh, there are only relatively unwild places. So in deciding what sort of creature I was, I had to undertake an autobiographical inquiry. So I went back to the place where I, Charles Foster, um, started my life. So that seam between uh, the wild and um, the suburban. So I, I, along with my son, Tom, uh, who at the time was 14 years old, uh, caught a train 150 miles and about 40,000 years up to Derbyshire. And there we tried to recreate uh, the way that Upper Paleolithic people lived. They were hunter-gatherers. We tried to hunt and we tried to gather. It was the middle of the winter when we first went there, um, and so we had to work quite hard at it. There weren't many berries to uh, pluck from the bushes. Uh, the hunting was difficult because the uh, uh, leaves... Uh, had fallen, and we were quite obvious of the things that we were trying to kill. So, yes, we scavenged off roadkill, we trapped rabbits. Uh, Tom was much more keen on being authentically um, Upper Paleolithic than I was, and much more skilled at it. So he insisted on um, cutting up things with the flint tools which he had uh, made himself on using nettle fibre to uh, make his rabbit snares, um, on carrying fire around with him in a little ball of fungus, of uh, generating the fire by uh, 
means of uh, a fire bow, such as um, lots of uh, non-modern people uh, know how to use. And we gradually felt ourselves being claimed by this place. And I think that, that was one of the great um, hunter-gatherer discoveries, uh, that contrary to the way in which we normally see our uh, relationship with the world, that of sort of colonial striding over it, claiming title to it, it claimed us. Um, and we listened to the stories which were seeping out of the hill, and we became part of the stories. It's generally thought that um, out-of-body experiences, altered states of consciousness, um, formed uh, an important part of the ignition of modern human consciousness. And uh, one of the ways which I describe in the book, in which I uh, tried to replicate this, was by the practice of wakeful dreaming. Um, depriving myself of sleep and learning to wander in the, the no man's land between uh, our usual uh, daytime sort of consciousness and um, the, the subconscious where most of what we really are dwells um, and negotiating the the passage between those two places um, in much the same way as an upper Paleolithic shaman would shuttle uh, between worlds across the veil which was represented by the wall of the cave on which those magnificent cave paintings are in order to uh, commune with the spirits and, and bring back wisdom from uh, from other realms. There are, there are cave paintings in, in Derbyshire? There are some cave paintings, yes, not of exactly this period, slightly later. Um, I, I was I was trying to work out what happened at the, the very start of the Upper Paleolithic. So the time when, uh, having had for a long time, perhaps 150,000 years or so, anatomically modern bodies, we suddenly acquire uh, behavioural traits which um, are akin to ours. What are those traits? Those traits are um, all to do really with symbolism. So if you go to a good museum of human evolution, those uh, museum shelves are really rather boring until you get to the upper pillar. You see uh, useful things, rather lumpen things. And then suddenly you get to about 40,000, 50,000 years ago, and there's a massive explosion of symbolism. So things like bone um, and stone are made to stand for things other than bone and stone. So a piece of bone might be carved into the shape of a caribou. A piece of stone might be uh, carved into the, the shape of a wolf. And if a piece of bone can become a caribou and a piece of stone can become a wolf while still remaining stone and bone, then the world is full of extraordinary possibilities, an infinite number of possibilities. And that's what you see in the Upper Paleolithic. Um, I, I think of it as a prismatic age. When light is shone through a prism, white light is shown to be composed of lots of different elements. And I think that in the Upper Paleolithic, white light was seen to be composed of lots of different things. So the world was seen to be full of, uh, of, of mystery and complexity 
previously undiscovered. And of course, this, this symbolic revolution conferred lots of, lots of tremendous advantages. Um, it, it meant that we could plan uh, our hunts in the safety of our own skulls. Uh, which is a safe place compared to trying it out for real in the dangerous world of tooth and claw, where if you get it wrong once, that's the only time you get it wrong. It, it, it's also explain your thoughts about the difference between mind and brain. I mean, you, you talk about nobody knows where consciousness comes from I mean at what point in the human body but they but you talk about the the brain as a prism uh, through which white light passes and makes all matter minded yeah so the the American anthropologist um, and uh, philosopher of religion, uh, Jeff Kripal, talks about um, it being uncontroversial that mind is mattered, uh, but also goes on to say something that I think is uh, demonstrably right, that matter is also minded. Um, so if, if there is plainly some relationship between the substance of my brain and um, the consciousness, the, the the mind, which um, which which I which I have, which it seems to me to be in some way continuous with the the other minds which um, there are in the in the universe. Um, the, the idea of the brain as um, a prism really came from uh, William James. He was pointing out that to say that something is a function of the brain is not the same as saying that it is produced by the brain. Um, the function of something can indicate transmission. So a, a prism refracts light but doesn't produce it. The output looks different from the input. The characteristics of a prism determine the output. So um, he said, and I, I'm sure this is right, that a Brain is something that gives particular color to that part of mind which beams into it. So if after our conversation uh, this evening, I go and drink a bottle of red wine in order to wind down, um, my brain chemistry will be affected in a way which um, affects um, what I describe as, as my consciousness. Uh, and indeed, my consciousness might be ablated completely for a bit until the um, alcohol passes out of my um, system. If um, an articulated lorry runs over my brain, um, plainly my um, ability to transmit or receive a consciousness will be uh, materially affected by my brain being squashed. So that is all a long-winded way of, of illustrating the the, the fact that mind is mattered. But there are all sorts of indications which I think we see very early in the, um, the, the story of human hunter-gatherers um, of, of the, the mindedness of matter. So in hunter-gatherer communities that we know about now, um, there's pretty compelling evidence of, of remote sensing. Um, Lawrence van der Post talks about uh, hunting groups um, in southern Africa who would know from about 50 miles away 
um, exactly what the other hunting group had managed to kill um, and precisely when they would return. Um, and this doesn't seem to be a uniquely human quality. So um, lots of your listeners will um, have experience of their, of their own in which their dogs know precisely when they, the owners, are coming home, even when the owners change their minds and deviate from the uh, routine at no notice at all. Um, so minds seem to be entangled with one another. Minds seem to transmit to others and receive from others. Um, and I, I don't think it's fanciful to see um, the, the traces of, of those sorts of characteristics um, in the, the very earliest um, Upper Paleolithic art that we've got. So those glorious cave paintings from uh, Southwestern Europe, some of the finest art I think, ever, and, and I'm including in that comment, some of the glories of the Italian Renaissance. Um, so we see people who understood um, animal anatomy as no one has ever understood it since, um, but yet um, depict caribou, um, which don't run on a natural plane, which seem to float artificially in the air, which have a hindquarter missing, and superimposed on these um, paintings often are sometimes handprints, um, sometimes strange grid-like devices. And it's thought that the reason that the caribou is missing the, the right hindquarter is because its right hindquarter is across uh, the other side of the cave wall in the um, other uh, world. Um, separated from this one by the veil represented by the cave wall. It's thought that those curious grids are the signs of the entoptic phenomena, which we can get by pressing on our eyeballs, but which we can also get when we alter our states of consciousness by the um, ingestion of hallucinogenic plants, for instance. I think it's a fair chance that we will all see entoptic phenomena uh, when we're dying. Uh, those handprints may indicate uh, sort of aspirational pressing of the veil. And also often associated with these paintings are therianthropes, so animal-human hybrids. Uh, what's going on there? It, it's thought that these are depictions of shamans who are in the process of, of converting to or converting back from uh, their spirit animal in order to go across to the other world. So we have there an acknowledgement uh, of the existence of realities other than this one, of other ways of, 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 of being, of other ways of, of perceiving the sorts of universe uh, which we live in. Which is what you mean when you say in the upper Paleolithic in Derbyshire that the wood or the forest claimed you and your son Tom, which means, first of all, that the that the forest is minded. And then secondly, that you managed to get in touch with one of those other dimensions uh, within your own mind in order to make the connection to the tree and the leaf and the magpie and the hare. Yes, that's what I mean. No one has ever been able to suggest how consciousness can emerge from unconscious matter. 
That is the big problem of uh, neuroscience. And um, despite lots of blithe, uh, unsubstantiated optimism that the problem is capable of solution, nobody um, has made the slightest um, progress in suggesting um, uh, what the solution might be. And so that, that has forced many first-rate philosophers um, to, to go back to the ancient presumption that matter is conscious. Philosophers like Whitehead and Strawson and, and Nagel. Um, and that, I think, is the intuition uh, as well of, of lots of us. There was a great debate between um, Einstein and Niels Bohr it concerned whether any theory could, in principle, correspond perfectly to the world. Einstein, despite um, being the author of the theory of relativity, said yes, but said no. Um, and many of your listeners will know about the, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which en encodes uh, the idea that uh, uncertainty is part of the, the web and weave of the universe. Anyway, um, it was thought that if Bohr was right, um, if something was related to another thing, it would always be related, however far apart the two things were, either in time or in space. And that turns out extraordinarily to be true. This is the doctrine of quantum non-locality. Um, so the spin of an electron um, in my desk uh, as I sit here in Oxford um, is affecting the spin of an electron um, in the furthest reaches of the universe. Why? Uh, because uh, everything has been very close to everything else um, at the moment before the Big Bang. Everything is intimately related and everything as a result of that original, very close relationship continues instantaneously and however far apart they are to affect everything else. So th that is a, a mathematical way of saying that we are all interconnected. Um, so it, interconnectedness is not a hippie woo-woo idea. It's not uh, a mere statement of ecological fact, although that is one of the consequences. Um, it's uh, a statement of uh, of the way the, the universe is, is woven together. Um, and so, and so, so it seems, seems unsurprising, that being the case, that uh, my mind sitting in uh, my study in Oxford is communicating on some, some level with um, not only the mind of the jackdaw, which I can see on the apex of the roof across the street, but also in some weird way with the electrons in the cup, which is sitting on my desk. Um, and and that, that interconnectedness forms a major part of, of the whole way of being of all hunter-gatherer communities. Um, and if we behaved politically, sociologically, and personally in a way which, um, which acknowledged that interconnectedness, rather than seeing ourselves ludicrously um, as the atomistic beings, which we most certainly are not, we would avert lots of the catastrophes which uh, we're heading into now. Then move on from the Upper Paleolithic to the Neolithic, where we begin to lose 
some of the dimensions of connection. And, and you, you mentioned fences, lines. Talk, talk about what you mean by the narrowing of vision that happens in the Neolithic and, and how many years ago? As far as chronology is concerned, the transition between the Upper Paleolithic and the Mesolithic and the Neolithic um, was not something that happened overnight. I mean, it happened um, incrementally and it happened at different times and different places. But most people probably agree that in most places the Neolithic is at least beginning by about eight, nine, uh, 10,000 years ago. Um, and it, it seems that the, the cradle for really explosive change in, in the Neolithic period, which is the birth of farming, uh, was the Near East. Having said that, um, it, it's really important to note that lots of our archaeology um, in all of the prehistoric eras is very Eurocentric. Um, and because the Near East is near Europe, uh, I'm sure that the Near East has been relatively overdug. And I'm sure there's a lot more to find um, in Africa. Um, and uh, I'm sure that things happened a lot earlier in Africa um, than they did over here. Anyway, we wanted, um, for whatever reason, our calories to be more convenient. Hunter-gathering uh, involved walking. Um, it involved a, an, an intimate and detailed knowledge of thousands of species um, and involved uh, a, a very sophisticated ecological understanding of how uh, food resources would change with the seasons. If you want your food just next door to you, you've got to be satisfied with a smaller number of species, a smaller number of animals, a smaller number of plants. Um, you've got to clear some of the forest in order to make room for your crops and to make room for your domestic animals. It means that you put your eggs in one basket, which is in, in some ways a very dangerous thing to do. Um, it also means that once you start losing the skills of uh, the old hunter-gatherers, it's very soon very difficult to find any way back. Once you become a mere farmer, um, good at sheep and goats, but no idea about how to hunt caribou, you're trapped into being a farmer. What happened is that you started you start to see people being trapped by what happens when you generate surplus. You become tyrannized by the laws of supply and demand. Um, when you get a surplus, you start to get status because uh, man X has uh, more than man Y. Um, because the women, by and large, are sitting at home grinding the grain rather than being out in the fields cutting it, um, the men can represent themselves as the primary producers um, and 
they can start believing that uh, they are more important than the women. So you start to have a division between men and women, which isn't seen or isn't seen to anything like the same extent um, in hunter-gatherer communities. Because you have all your eggs in one basket and you can have catastrophic uh, failure of your calorie supply in a way which really doesn't happen in hunter-gatherer communities because if you're a hunter-gatherer and the bushes in one area fails, you just go to another area. If you have a, a catastrophic harvest in your val- in your valley, um, you're going to die unless you go over to the valley next door where your neighbours um, have had a good harvest and you take it from them. So we see um, interpersonal violence on a big scale for the first time. And you see the diseases associated with sedentism. You see um, epidemic diseases. Um, of this, the sorts which um, have dogged humans ever since. We see occupational diseases, arthritis and uh, tooth decay um, on a big scale for the first time in the Neolithic. So a very high price politically, medically and spiritually was paid uh, for, for this chain. And, and I, I say spiritually because I, I think um, uh, the, the main characteristic of of this Neolithic revolution was a a split from uh, the relationship, the the intimate, entangled relationship which we had previously had with the natural world. The natural world had always, before the Neolithic, uh, been seen as indivisible from from humans, um, as as Darwin subsequently told us, uh, that it was indeed indivisible. But if you start saying, I am the master of the pigs which feed me, you start dividing yourself uh, from the rest of the natural world and you start to feel lonely. You added to your uh, economic crises and the crises of war and pestilence, you start seeing... Um, the sort of ontological spiritual crises uh, which um, are associated with the fear of death. Um, so in, in Stonehenge um, in England, one of the the great Neolithic monuments, you see uh, effectively a, a great theme park in which people walked between Woodhenge, a representative of, of, of transient temporal life now, um, and the stone Henge, which was uh, a representative of the the realm of the dead. People walked that course because they wanted to put to rest their fear of that uh, ultimate journey of death that they would have to take. We don't see that same uh, ontological dread uh, in the Upper Paleolithic world because the earth to which you would return as as a hunter-gatherer, was a world of which you had always been a part. So the the transition which death entailed uh, wasn't so traumatic a one. And indeed, certainly for Upper Paleolithic hunter-gatherers, death involved an increase rather than a decrease in the agency which you had. Agency was everywhere in the world. The agency of the human dead and probably the animal dead too increased when the breath left their bodies. You also talk about language 
and and um, written language. And the written language is a product of the Neolithic, and you see it as both a bonding agent, but also divisive and immensely destructive. Explain what, what you mean by that. Yeah, well, I don't just see written language as divisive and destructive. Yes. Um, but, I see written, but I see written language as particularly divisive and destructive. But uh, the, the, the Upper Paleolithic certainly had language. Um, I expect that Upper Paleolithic language um, was used as a tool to um, manipulate the world um, rather than being something which manipulated its users um, in a way which is certainly true of modern language. So um, I am now looking out of my window at a tree. It's swaying around in the wind. I'm getting visual images from that tree and I'm translating those visual images almost immediately into... Uh, things which have absolutely nothing whatever to do with that particular tree. Um, I'm translating it into um, remembered fragments of poems about trees, remembered physiological facts about trees. So all things which are generic, um, things which are self-referential, things which are self-reverential. So I have never seen a tree, and I've never seen a tree because of what language does to me. I live, as almost all modern people live, in an entirely virtual world, and the connection of which with the real world of trees and crows and caribou and other human beings um, is is very slender. Now, I, I expect that um, in the uh, Upper Paleolithic, um, that tyranny of language, that hold which it has on our cognition, and therefore the hold which it has on our epistemology, um, was not there or wasn't so tight. Um, when uh, language starts to be more important, um, starts to be involved much more in the, the business of abstracting the world and living in the abstracted world which it creates, it starts to do great damage. When language starts to be written down, the process accelerates. And um, language, uh, which f first started to be written down in, in Mesopotamia, f when that shift to, uh, to written language happened, it, it's associated with um, a crystallization of, of, of oppressive hierarchical structures. Um, it's used for recording whose grain uh, harvest has been greatest, who owes what tax to whom, etc., etc., etc. And, of course, there are always going to be people who can read and people who can't read, therefore creating another level of of division, another level of hierarchy, another ground for um, uh, oppression. But I think there's another thing going on here, which um, David Abraham, who I've mentioned before, uh, talks about um, beautifully. And that is that language is perceived as a uniquely human possession. Certainly when language becomes phonetic, it becomes alphabetic, its relationship to the natural world 
uh, becomes non-existent. It, beca- it does become then purely a human possession. Before then, when it was represented in pictographs, for example, as it still is in, for example, uh, Chinese and Japanese, there is at least some nod to uh, the the real non-abstracted worlds. A, a Chinese character for a house looks like a house. A Chinese character for a tree looks like a tree. But when that link with the real sights and sounds of the natural world becomes broken, it's possible for humans to say that the natural world is silent because language is the only mode for real communication. So in a hunter-gatherer world, the world is full of voices. The whole of the hunter-gatherer experience is a conversation. Uh, We've talked already about um, being claimed by that hill in Derbyshire, uh, and we felt that we had a conversation with it. Uh, uh, That is a two-way thing. Uh, But when we declare, because of our... uh, obsession with language and our insistence that's the only way that um, reality can be represented um, that the natural world is silent that gives us uh, a mandate for destroying it for behaving towards it um, in a cavalier and often frankly psychopathic way um, and but that may be behind some of the ecological crises which we now face All right, now skip forward. Well, first of all, when you're visiting the Neolithic, you you do so on a farm in the in the Jordan Valley near Jericho, and you talk about Natufians. I mean, who? I mean, how long were you there, and 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 what was the experience of being camped out in the Neolithic in the Jordan Valley? I spent a lot of time um, in. Jericho and surrounding areas over the course of many years, although uh, that that particular phase in the book is represented as as um, just a few days. Um, the, so the Natufians are an interesting Near Eastern people who um, confound, as many archaeological discoverers uh, increasingly do, the, the notion that there's uh, a clear line to be drawn between hunter gatherers and uh, sedentary farmers because uh, they both hunted and gathered on the one hand and farmed in on the other hand they they had they had villages uh, but also went after the gazelles on their seasonal migrations and and the natufians are important because they indicate to us something of of what might have happened um in order to generate the sort of uh, sedentary farming which we now recognise. Anyway, we see in Jericho that the first clear signs of of established f- uh, farming culture, uh, and we see some of those signs um, encoded in the, the the stories that we have in the Bible. So the the, the Cain and Abel uh, story, for example, that the root of the of the word Cain. Um, is acquisition and possession. The root of the word Abel is vanishing breath. Cain is the, the classic Neolithic figure, uh, a tiller of the ground. 
able, he's a, he's a wandering pastoralist. He's not quite a hunter-gatherer because the Bible joins the story um, rather rather later on. But he's he's a, a lot closer to a hunter-gatherer than uh, than Cain is. Um, and it's interesting the very first human violence um, when Cain kills Abel happens in a field, that quintessential uh, Neolithic territory. So we, we see in, in these times that the birth of, of lots of things which have subsequently dominated our culture, we've mentioned lots of them already, um, status, farming, uh, supply and demand and so on, but, but also... Also but, politics. But, <laughs> also, also politics, absolutely, which, which flow from, from lots of these structures. But, but but also things which we probably don't realise govern us now. So um, we see for the first time rectilinear buildings. Up until then, the houses which they had been had been round. Um, rectilinear buildings are are significant. They sort of elbow into into the natural world. They they, they shove the natural world into a corner. They have corners themselves, which mean that you can say in a rectilinear house, um, as you can't say in a roundhouse, this is my corner. It's not your corner. It means that you can have secrets. Um, in a roundhouse, the fire is in the middle and everybody gets a look at the fire. Um, there's, there's a sort of natural democracy about, about a round structure. Rectilinear structures are better at commanding the view of the landscape um, that the particular farmer wants. So they're, they're project-focused. You put your farm in the place where you will be able to survey your domain. Possession is uh, an intrinsic part of, of the very fact that you have an, uh, a rectilinear house. The, 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 the subsequent history of, of building, certainly in the West, um, has been this, this rectilinearity. Um, and the, the only straight lines that we see in um, hunter-gatherer culture, upper Paleolithic culture, are erect penises um, in the aroused shamans in the middle of their rituals and those grids um, on, on the walls of the caves. So it, it may be that as I began by suggesting when we were talking about the Neolithic, that, um, that the straight line was what was um, invented then. Um, the, 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 the notion, most importantly, that, that time behaved in a, uh, in a straight line way, um, which, if you think about it, is nonsense, um, but also gave rise to something which had very sinister consequences later on, which is the notion of progress, um, which all right um, on, on that note, carry us now the transition from the Neolithic to what you call the Enlightenment. Right. Well, it's a massive jump in chronology, of course. I understand that, but I mean, in terms of <laughs> attitude and mind, it's it go into the Enlightenment, and because that's the idea of progress. Yeah. So. Um, the Enlightenment started off as a brilliant, uh, audacious idea. Um, it was the idea that there were no questions which could not and should not be asked. 
it was a movement which uh, uh, put a very high premium on human reason. Um, and it was the time when then and uh, immediately before in the scientific revolution, the scientific method was born. So um, focus on uh, demonstration, on empirical inquiry. Um, uh, and that was all to the good. But some strange things happened. Um, I think in order to understand what really happened, we've got to go back um, a little bit before the Enlightenment to Descartes, who, who distinguished between matter and mind, between the mental and matter, which sounded like an innocent move at the time. But quite quickly, um, it led to his, his famous uh, Cartesian dualism, and it led um, to the eventual declaration, uh, and it was a declaration, not a demonstration, um, that there was only matter. Um, so previously, the, the whole of the world um, had been seen as uh, infused with mind, ensouled. Uh, and this had been true even in um, the medieval church. So... Uh, the medieval church had adopted Aristotle's view of the world, which saw vegetable souls and animal souls and human souls. Yes, there was something toxic about that hierarchy. It allowed humans to, dem to denigrate um, non-humans, uh, but at least it acknowledged that souls were everywhere. No, eventually, said the Enlightenment, um, there are no souls, there is only matter. The, the, the doctrine of material reductionism. Um, and that had some profound moral consequences because it's not obviously morally dodgy to smash up a machine. It is more obviously morally questionable um, to destroy something which is ensouled. And also, I think, um, what happened quite quickly was that um, what had begun as a spirit of free inquiry um, became hardened into effectively um, religious doctrines. So we have a, a now um, a sort of environmental fundamentalism of, of a religious kind. So um, Stephen Pinker, who is thought of as one of the high priests of the Enlightenment, um, will say things like a major breakthrough of the scientific revolution was to refute the intuition that the universe is saturated with purpose. Now, it may or may not be the case that the universe um, is saturated with purpose, but it is certainly not the case um, that the intuition that it is can be refuted in a scientific way. So you see in comments like that that um, science is being regarded not as a method of inquiry, but as a received um, set of beliefs, a catechism, which you have to believe um, in order to be uh, part of the intellectual community. Um, and this whole way of looking at the world is a way which, um, as a matter of received dogma, um, says that intuition um, is useless, that imagination is useless, um, as a matter of fact, of course, um, or many, probably most, of the really tectonic 
um, scientific and mathematical discoveries um, have involved the exercise of a good deal of intuition and imagination. And what is regarded as the as the demonstration has been ex post facto rationalization. You, as a mathematician, intuit what the right answer is, typically, and then you go away and spend a few years uh, proving it in a way that you can publish in the journals. Um, that, that's how the real world works. That's the real relationship uh, between uh, mind and uh, the natural world. And that the parody of the way the scientific uh, method works and the real reach that it has has, has produced a, a dispiriting stagnancy in, in modern science. I see it all the time in my scientific colleagues here at the university. What you go to the lab um, in the morning to do is not to question the, 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 the paradigm it's to shove into the received paradigm the facts which um, you see as a result of your observation of the Petri dishes, however uncomfortable it might be to shove the facts into those paradigms. And that is a profoundly unenlightenment uh, way of looking at the world. So I, I would love there to be a new enlightenment, an enlightenment which... Uh, which rehabilitates that original um, spirit of scepticism, of excitement, the notion which we get from the hunter-gatherers, um, that the world is full of wonders uh, and that we need all the resources, including the resources of imagination and intuition, um, in order to grasp them, that, um, that science is a romantic, a poetical enterprise. That's a wonderful point at which to leave off this discussion. We could go on for a long time, but the idea of poetry uh, coming back into the world and, and the, the use of metaphor as our uh, means of uh, communication, it, it, it's a truly wonderful book. And, and I expect to read it many times. And thank you, Charles Foster, for speaking with us today about your new book, Being a Human, Adventures in 40,000 Years of Consciousness. I've enjoyed our conversation very much indeed. Thank you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.